I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Dan, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mayor, M-E-E-R, Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, Consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to returning guests Ben Freeman and Nick Cleveland Stout of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft on their recent work detailing Russia lobbying and influence peddling efforts in D.C. And we'll even get into efforts of the same kind by Ukraine. But first, Professor Bruce Ledowitz of Duquesne University joins us to discuss his fascinating new book, The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. In said book, Ledowitz deals with the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche's declaration that God is dead. What does that mean, though? What does the replacement of religious society with a more secular society mean? And why have we seen so much polarization in the secular era? 
Is it possible to create a more peaceful and cooperative society based on secular values? These are just some of the issues Professor Ledowitz and I tackle in the conversation to follow. And I hope you, the listener, find it as intriguing to listen to as I found it intriguing to conduct. So, without further ado, Bruce Ledowitz on his new book, The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really happy to have on. He has a really fascinating book out. Uh, Bruce Ledovitz, author of the book, and I'll see if I can hold it up here for the video version. Uh, It's not showing up due to my background. Uh, (laughs) The universe, anyways, it's called The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. How are you doing today, Bruce Ledovitz? Maybe you could tell my listeners uh, a little bit about uh, your background before we get into the book, because I think your background is important um, since the book deals with secularism and religion and uh, questions pertaining to these two things. Maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about religion and secularism in your life. Well, I, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish school, the New Haven Hebrew Day School, and um, I loved Orthodox Judaism. Um, at the same time, Uh, We had a housekeeper who had been in our family for a couple of generations, Gertrude Falls, and uh, she was a Jehovah Witness. And so, uh, you know, on the one hand, I've got Torah and on the other, the Watchtower. So it's 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 all religion all the time. And some kids just grooved to that. And I was one of them. I could not get enough of it. Um, My my mother uh, took me out of the New Haven Hebrew Day School at the end of the fourth grade because I, I was so besotted with it that I said to her well, one day, mom, why don't we keep kosher? And uh, for those of your listeners who know, uh, that's quite a, a, a burden, especially on women at that, in, in that era in particular. My mother wasn't having any of it. She, she realized to her horror that I was taking this seriously. And she was an educated woman. She was a child psychologist. <clears throat> she was working on her PhD. And, uh, and, and so she just took me out of that school before I became what she regarded as a black hat. Um, but then you know, I spent time at uh, the uh, Mount, Mount Hermon School uh, in um, Northfield, Massachusetts, which was founded by Dwight Lyman Moody. And so um, I'm, I'm now getting the social gospel. In a, in a, you know, I'm now going to chapel five days a week and um, I'm learning the New Testament for the first time. And um, unlike everybody else in that school, most of the kids in that school, I really had never opened the New Testament. I knew nothing about it. And I remember the first time I encountered uh, Jesus of Nazareth before my sophomore year and an evening in late August, opening up the Gospel of Mark with great trepidation and uh, realizing instantly that this was just more Torah, that this was not any different from Judaism, the Judaism I had studied and that Jesus was not much different from the rabbis that I had loved in the New Haven Hebrew Day School. And, and, and then, um, you know, I, I spent time at Georgetown, which is nominally at least the Catholic institution, and I teach law at Duquesne Law School. 
um, a, a Catholic institution. And in the middle of all that, I had my, my, my secular years at Yale Law School. So if we could, the title of your book is The Universe is on Our Side. And I believe that's a reference uh, to a Canadian Jesuit and, and theologian. Uh, could you talk about the question that um, individual? I think- Lonergan, 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 Bernard yeah. Lonergan. Well, uh, Bernard Lonergan is a, a, a great thinker of, of, of the mid 20th century, mid to late 20th century. And uh, Lonergan knew, I mean, he was a student of um, uh, human thinking. His great work was uh, Insight. Uh, and and he's, re- he's regarded by most as the, the greatest uh, 20th century thinker about thinking, about the way that we think and uh, how humans uh, want to know. He talks about the unrestricted desire to know as transcultural and transtemporal uh, in the human experience. Anyway, so uh, Bernard Lonigan was also aware, he, he was of course a, a devout Catholic, um, but he was aware of uh, the secular trends in society. And he gave us a question, which he regarded as the question of God, but he put it in a way that um, a secular person like myself, someone who had fallen out of belief in God, someone whose relationship with God became completely ruptured, as mine did, uh, he asked the question, is the universe on our side? And uh, and what he meant was, are we human beings the the first and only instance of moral and rational conduct and, and, and orientation in all the universe? Are we essentially an accident that is out of step with everything else in reality, or are we part of it and it a part of us? I think the exact thing he said, and I like the line he uses, uh, is the universe on our side or are we just gamblers? And if we're gamblers, are we not fools? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a strong statement. And in the book, I take seriously the no, the universe is not on our side. It was not my intention in the book to make an argument for the yes. I, I mean, I do make an argument for the yes, but we don't know how secular civilization is going to answer that question because fundamentally the book is about the question, can we build a healthy secular civilization? That is a question. And the, the biggest criticism I have of secularism of which I'm a part is that it does not take that question seriously. It is not going to be easy to build secular civilization. And as organized religion and religious belief has declined in America in particular, we've become more violent, more irrational, more hate-filled. And that's not surprising. That would not surprise Nietzsche one bit. The death of God, he knew, was a disaster, even if it was the truth. If you could, I want you to talk about that a little bit more, because I think people people know that famous line, you know, God is dead, Nietzsche, but I don't think they understand what Nietzsche was necessarily getting at, or there's been different interpretations of it. What, what do we mean by that story? What, what is Nietzsche and the story of the death of God? Well, Nietzsche wasn't really interested in the issue of atheism, only because, not because he wasn't an atheist, which he was, but he, he just never thought that anybody would not be an atheist. You know, that wasn't the question. Um, the question, and, and it was really um, Heidegger, the, the great uh, philosopher who read Nietzsche so well and, and explained it maybe better than Nietzsche himself did, um, the foundation of Western civilization, the good, the true, the beautiful, the just, um, 
rested on a foundation of God. And um, that foundation was gone. Uh, Nietzsche knew that in 1882. And he knew that um, something else was needed. Now, Nietzsche's idea of what was needed was uh, the will, uh, a, a powerful human will to revalue values. Um, he thought human beings themselves would be the source of values. And, but in any event, that's, you know, that's not the negative part. The negative part of his, of his seeing was that um, the, the, the civilization that he knew would have to fall because it, its foundation was now gone. And that's another criticism I have of secularism. People, secularists like, like me, most secularists think, well, people don't believe in God. That's great. You know, it's good. Um, and they never acknowledge the catastrophe that it's been. Now, but I want to be very clear about this, that the fact that the death of God is bad for people has nothing to do with whether it's the case. You know, it is the case. You can't will yourself to believe in God if science has shown you that that kind of God is impossible. So I want to get more into that. Um, but first, I, I guess I, I think there will be people that will say, oh, well, I, I believe in God. What do, you, what do you mean that we live in a secular society? Uh -huh. You know, 70% of people uh, still believe or say they believe in God. But you mean something very specific when you say secular. And I also think that uh, you would argue that even most people who may say, hey, I believe in a God, uh, they believe in it in a very sort of secular society kind of way. Absolutely. That's yeah, that's very true. That is that is exactly what I say. The um, you can tell that the people who say they believe in God don't very easily by their behavior. I mean, it's no accident that right wing Christianity, for example, has fallen in love with Donald Trump and is now transferred religious symbols to his rallies. I mean, it's heresy. But uh, but, you know, why wouldn't it be heresy? Because uh, these people don't really understand anything about Christianity and they don't really believe in God. And you and so and you can tell and you can tell the same thing on the left. The, the people, you know, in the liberals in churches and synagogues are uh, are no more believers than the people on the right. I mean, it's it's not real to us. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you wouldn't like to believe it, and, but it has nothing to do with a survey on which people say, I believe in God. Now, the one thing that I think is important, though, if secularists, if, you know, the nuns, the people who say they're not affiliated with religion, that 25% of American adults now, if the, if the people who are not affiliated with religion still say on surveys that they, that they believe in God, that means they're not satisfied with materialism. With, with, the, with the view of reality that uh, reality is just forces and matter and we are an accident. Or another way to put it, they don't answer no to Lonergan's question. They answer yes. I think, I think that, that is a symbol, that the, their use of the term God is a symbol of their search to try to vindicate the yes. It's really interesting, the point you brought up about um, sort of the Christian right supporting Trump, because... I don't know. I've often said to people, I find it very, it's strange to me that there's this sort of Christian right that often sounds like it's quoting Ayn Rand and, you know, the book, The Fountainhead. Um, right. Yes. It, it seems like the Christian right really isn't even that religious. It's almost driven by secular concerns at this point. And that's sort of 
uh, getting into your point that we're such a secular society that even the people that view themselves as religious sort of have that secularism within them. Right. And, and I, I tell the story, and I, I hate to tell the story about the Pope, Pope Francis, whom I greatly admire. But when during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic in, in the spring of 2020, uh, ex Orbi at, at Orbi, uh, his, uh, his address, he tells the story for Mark, the Gospel of Mark, about, about the disciples on the, on the lake and uh, Jesus being with them. And he left out one verse. He left out the verse, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Because that kind of wonder-working God would have raised the question, why, don't, why aren't we praying to God to spare us the virus? Well, we, we know viruses are natural events. God, there's no God that has anything to do with it, but that's the fundamental secularism. Now, having said that, I, there are millions of sincere believers and um, I don't want anything I say to suggest in the slightest that I don't have great respect for that, that I don't believe them. None of that's the case. Nietzsche knew that too. That's not, um, but they don't control the culture now. And I think they know that. So it's interesting to me, you said that in many ways, uh, this, the, the loss of faith has been a catastrophe. Uh, where, where would you say that the sort of, uh, cementing of secularism comes from, uh, or where, where would you pinpoint the, the sort of cementing of secular society? Um, and also, uh, why do you think, or what aspects of it do you think have been the most catastrophic? Well, the, in terms of secularism, it's science. The wonder-working God is, is not consistent with the laws of science. And, and you have to say that religion has done a very bad job of accommodating that. Um, that's, you know, the, the word in, in, in the Jewish tradition is mitzvot. Mitzvot are the ways that Jews are, are supposed to live. The, the, the word means commandment. There's no one to give such a command. And that's, and, 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 and Christianity, as uh, C.S. Lewis said, is one great miracle, the resurrection. Well, there was no, I mean, I, I can't accept that. So, it's not, you know, sometimes the religious people say, well, you just don't believe in miracles. That's no big deal. Um, I don't either. But the truth is our religions are built on miracles. Every one of the great traditions is built on wonders that we cannot accept given a scientific worldview. So our, whatever, wherever we're gonna end up has to be consistent with science because science for us is truth. And, and I don't think you can dispute that not and be culturally um, believable. Now, in terms of the catastrophe, I, I lay a lot of the post-truth world to the absence of a standard of truth, and God was the standard of truth. And um, so we live in a post-truth age because God is dead. We hate each other because God is dead. We don't believe in the future anymore because God is dead. Um, and I tell the story about how we used to uh, wonder what the 21st century would be like, but nobody wonders what the 22nd century will be like because we don't expect anything good. And all of that comes from uh, disagreeing with Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That's another way of saying the universe is on our side. 
but we don't believe that anymore. So what do you think the breaking point was? Why don't we believe in uh, that, that famous Martin Luther King line of, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice. What do you think um, has led to this moment that we're at where, I, I mean, ultimately there's been a breakdown of trust in our public institutions. And that's sort of what your book is about, is about how do we restore that trust? But how did we get there in the first place, I guess? Well, I think it was, you know, to some extent, I think it was a misunderstanding because the the assumption was by the enlightenment that um, if if you didn't believe in God, then you had to believe in science and that's true. And science was adopting a, a entirely materialistic view, a mechanistic materialist view. Matter was dead. And everything was a bowling, a, a, a billiard ball, re- reacting to forces, including us. Um, but that, as uh, Alfred North Whitehead um, said and wrote, that that's not very good science. That that's the kind of science that cannot even account for human consciousness. So, science is going to have to get out of that. But the the secularist uh, worldview is not really grounded in science. It's grounded in politics. So um, secularists, most secularists, the organized secularists, the people in the American Humanist Society, for example, um, they latch on to a kind of outdated view of science, and they assume that it's either the wonder-working God or mechanistic materialism. Well, if you think that's the choice, then you end up with mechanistic materialism, and that's the breakdown. Now. I'm trying in the book to suggest that, you know, maybe that's the case, but it's not the only possibility. So if you could, since you mentioned Alfred North Whitehead, you cover uh, Whitehead and uh, process theology. And you also, as we were talking about before um, we got on air here, uh, you, you mentioned a figure that I'm familiar with, David Ray Griffin, uh, who sort of helped popularize um process theology, especially within uh, academic discourses. And I, he's an interesting figure because I think most people know him because he has 9-11 conspiracies that he believes in, but I think he'll be remembered for his work on process theology. And I'm really grateful that you were able to speak to his work on that. So maybe you could describe what process theology is and who Alfred North Whitehead uh, was. Well, he was earlier in the century. Um, uh, a, a thinker, uh, he came out of mathematics, um, but, but you know, in a way, he, like Bernard Lonergan, both very comfortable in science and very comfortable in religion. As a matter of fact, there's a, a debate about whether process is really process philosophy or process theology. Um, and as, but I give a very simplistic view of Whitehead in the book. And I do not claim to really understand Whitehead. And the great thing about David Ray Griffin is that he's a popularizer of uh, Alfred North Whitehead's thinking. And this thinking is a, is, is a way of getting out of um, the limits of uh, reality described by David Hume and others. In particular, that we can only gain knowledge through the senses. If we can only gain knowledge through the senses, then love doesn't exist. Truth doesn't exist. Causation doesn't exist. Um, and uh, Whitehead had uh, what he called a prehension or intuitive understanding. And he felt that um, this was real, that, that, that these intuitions that we have of beauty in particular, he thought the whole universe was organized to the production of beauty. 
uh, and aesthetics. But in any event, the intuitions that we have about beauty, about goodness, about um, justice, these give us real knowledge about reality. And, uh, and therefore, it's possible to uh, have a kind of materialism that is not, and he was a materialist. Now he was a believer in God, but his God is so different from the God of traditional Judeo-Christianity that um, you know a lot of people would say it's really no God at all. And that's how I feel about it too. Uh, but in any event, it is possible to have something other than mechanistic materialism. And that's the point that Griffin hammers home, that we are not limited to that form of naturalism, that we can believe that truth and justice and goodness are real in the universe and not be anti-science and not believe in the wonder-working God of the Bible. So in that way, uh, one could use Whitehead to say, hey, Maybe the universe is on our side. Maybe, right. And, I, and I, I, I'm very clear not to try to use Whitehead to prove the case. Uh, Whitehead for me, and, and he had this effect on me. See, for a long time, I, I, didn't, I wasn't satisfied with mechanistic materialism, but I didn't see any alternative. It, what Whitehead gives is a possibility that the universe is on our side. He doesn't prove it. He just makes it plausible. And that's all I needed. Then, then you can look for yourself and, and, and see, what, what do I think? I mean, the book is importantly about what it means to ask a question. This culture doesn't know how to ask a question anymore. The question is, is the universe on our side? It's not a political question. It's not, I don't know what Biden thinks. Of, I, I actually do know what Biden thinks about it. But I mean, I don't know what po politicians think about that and it's irrelevant. That's a question that we can ask across every divide. And it's a question that Lonergan thought every human being ultimately must ask. Are we at home here? Is the universe like us? Or are we an exception? That's the question. So if we could, with that question, I think you would most likely answer in the affirmative. Uh, yes. Or at least you get. So there's other people that have not answered in the affirmative, uh, but have answered no. And the one that you mentioned, uh, his name comes up a lot on this show because I've read some of his work. He's very pessimistic, is John Gray. Could you talk about uh, people yes. like John Gray and other thinkers who you talk about in the book who say, you know what? No, the universe is not on our side. And uh, what do you think the value of their thought may be? Well, I mean, first of all, I call John Gray a hero of the no. He is so clear in his thinking, so consistent so courageous in his thinking that um, he, he's like a saint to me, sort of a saint of the no, the universe is not on our side. He takes them the matter with utmost seriousness and he criticizes uh, other uh, atheists, other uh, secularist atheists for not taking it seriously. He, he accuses almost everyone of being a closet religionist. And he would of course say that about me too. But, um, but, you know, but I at least understand what he's getting at. But he's, he thinks the new atheists, for example, in their mania to, to, to convince us of the truth of their view. He said, well, what kind, of, what kind of world is it in which you care whether there's a truth of your view or whether you even know whether there's a truth of your view? In religion, he says, you could, you could believe that. 
but not if you're an atheist. And so um, in, in their very insistence on, on, on the truth of the view that there's no truth, Gray says they commit a fundamental error. Gray's atheism, his no, the universe is not on our side, is stark. He is, he is it's not something that people will, will easily embrace. Um, because he says, fun, basically, you have to retire and uh, make a small, beautiful space for yourself and let the world go to hell because um, anything else betrays your uh, belief that the, uh, you know, there are great purposes and great movements and there are not. Um, now, uh, Carl Sagan, another hero of the no and some of his moods anyway, he, he in, the, in the Pale Blue Dot episode in which, in which the spacecraft's cameras are turned uh, back to, to catch a, a picture of the Earth 2.6 billion miles from the sun, the pale blue dot, and his, uh, his voiceover, Carl Sagan's voiceover, we are alone. There is no help in this dark vastness. That's a, another kind of no. The universe is not on our side. Gray concludes, therefore, we should just retire individually and in small groups. Uh, Sagan says, no, uh, it, it could, the no can be a source of a very humane social movement in which we appreciate how much we need each other. It's interesting for me that you bring up the Pilbaloo dot because um, I remember when I first saw that, it felt like a burden was being lifted on me because I mean, when, when he's showing you the pill blue dot, you know, it makes you realize that, hey, take a step back from things you know, you're relatively insignificant in, in the cosmos, right? Uh, which in some ways lifts a heavy sense of burden, but it also makes you realize like, what, what is the point of being violent to one another? What's the, what's the point of those things? So I, I think it's interesting uh, the ways in which Sagan's pill blue dot and talking about that really can get us to think in uh, ways we may not have considered before. Uh, that's absolutely true. And uh, I think it's Deleuze, um, who, the philosopher Deleuze, who has a line about wh why would I bother to uh, to uh, step over corpses to get what I want? What, what's the point of that? And 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 really, a life in the know should devalue power politics. It should devalue cruelty. It should devalue all the horrible things of the world. All of this is is the potential of the know to found a secular civilization. Now, on the other hand, it hasn't done very well, you know, because most of secularists say, would, would say organized secularism answers no, and it's been no help at all. It's just as violent and hate-filled as its opponents. And that's what I, I can't understand. Why, why, if you think the universe is just forces and matter, would you hate your political opponents? Why would you bother? Anyway, it's not my answer. But I, I give it, I try to give it serious space in the book. I wanted to talk a little bit about the new atheists uh, for a second here, because it, it's interesting to me. I, I've become very critical of a lot of the um, new atheists, particularly Sam Harris. Um, and I think it's interesting. I, I think uh, a lot of us who went through maybe a new atheism phase have become more critical of it. And I, I think there's even people within 
uh, sort of secular and skepticism sort of debating communities uh, that now debate, you know, uh, issues related to new atheism and people like Sam Harris. So I'm curious, what do you think about new atheism and maybe um, what it has gotten right, what it has gotten wrong, things of that nature? Well, I think the fun, fundamentally it gets right that, that uh, there isn't any God um, and that this is really not a plausible construct for us. And, you know, that's the, the basic idea. Um, what it gets wrong is uh, a, a number of things. First of all, uh, it's tone. Uh, it's dismissing and harassing tone uh, against religious believers, which is weird since I, from my point of view, I was happier when I believed in God than I am now. And well, maybe not. I was in a bad marriage then. So maybe I am happier now, but not because of that. Um, it, I think religious believers are great. And I think they're lucky. And uh, there isn't any reason for um, us to look down on religious believers. So they established an us-them uh, in American politics, which is very unhelpful, especially since there's so many voters who are still religious. And, um, you know, it, you, you're giving up an awful lot of votes for no real reason. Secondly, their politics was awful. Um, you know, some of them supported the Iraq war um, and they were, um, they had thin politics. And so uh, the, the identity politics that we have now, the inability to commit ourselves to, uh, to a, a great movement and believe that it will be successful and love our opponents the way Dr. King did, all of that is lost. Uh, and and they, they began that descent into us, them politics. And, fi and finally, Sam Harris mistitled his book. You know, his was the first book. You're and talking he, about the end of faith, right? The end of faith. And that there is no truth. Bernard Lonergan was so clear about this. And, you know, he wasn't responding to Harris. He was earlier. But he said, there is no truth without faith. Uh, I don't know that there's liquid water underneath one of the moons of Saturn. I take it on faith, and I don't know anything about it. And, uh, I, I, you know, warranted faith. And what all Harris meant was uh, the end of unwarranted faith. But he didn't want to engage religion. Most religious believers think that they're being entirely rational. They think their faith is warranted. He never engaged, so he he's, he skipped a step, and he was a large part of why we are now in the age of post-truth, because without faith, he's right. Now, it was the end of faith, but now we have people who don't have faith in vaccines. They don't have faith in, you know, climate change and everything else. I was going to ask as well, uh, since we're talking about things related to science now and, and post-truth. Uh, you know, you have people that, that um, are anti-vax. You have people that are, uh, you know, I, I don't have to wear a mask. There's people that even think COVID is just completely a hoax, which to me is just out there, right? But um, I'm curious, what do you think people misunderstand about what science is? Because I, I think people, you know, even with Sam Harris, someone will say to me, oh, well, Sam Harris, uh, believes in science, so therefore he must be right about, uh, you know, Charles Murray or, or the bell curve. And I'm like, well, there's other scientists that would disagree with that, people like Stephen Jay Gould. And I, I'm not even going to get into that debate, but I think people 
don't understand what science is. Sometimes they almost um, talk about uh, a, a person that claims to be uh, the voice of science as being science itself. And I don't think they're the same thing. No, absolutely not. And this is what I meant earlier. And I'm not a scientist, I'm a lawyer. And of course, that's exactly what's wrong with a lot of this debate. There are too many lawyers and too few scientists. Scientists don't give un, unthinking faith to scientific conclusions. They're always held lightly. And so, you, you know, take the masks, for example. Uh, masks, uh, in terms of COVID, there's plenty of evidence that masks are not particularly effective. I, I, I don't want to get into the, the, the debate about, you know, where, where people end up. But masks compared to distancing, was, was never an effective bar to the virus. And if you said that, you were a Trumpist. You were barred from Twitter. So what we have is, uh, and scientists must find this awful because they question their conclusions all the time. But politically, uh, Democrats and liberals now act as if the, the, you know, the most recent scientific consensus is God-given. They, you know, they treat it like it's revealed at Sinai. And science says, as you know, science does not work that way. The, what's, what's, what's concluded today may be wrong tomorrow. Now, you have to be, um, I know Shermer, uh, you know, the, um, the editor of Skeptic Magazine says you have to be skeptical even about skepticism. There's no reason to be skeptical about climate change at this point. You could be, but you have to be reasonable. The evidence is overwhelming. There's, there, there really isn't any contra evidence. But about most things, a lot of things, there's plenty of evidence both ways. You know, and people said, um, you know, the vaccines won't be effective. It turns out in, in many ways they weren't. I mean, in some ways they were great. I got COVID, I, I was vaccinated, and therefore it was like a, a cold rather than going on a ventilator. But the vaccines didn't last very long. So uh, we have to have these, you know, uh, the follow-up boosters. Anyway, all these things, as you, as you know, science is a kind of continuing debate based on reason and evidence. And that's what makes it great because every conclusion is looked at by other people and all results are attempted to be duplicated. I wish our politics were like that. So before we get more into the, the politics uh, and, and also how maybe we can restore uh, faith, because now we're in this situation where I, I think people are almost like very tribal, where they'll say, um, you know, oh, the problem, we're, we're very polarized, that's a problem, but it's the other team's fault. Um, always. Maybe always. you could comment on that. Yeah, well, I, I, a lot of people have noticed that this book, The Universe is on Our Side, is one of the few books about the breakdown in American public life that both sides could read. And I think it's true. I mean, I certainly tried very hard for that to be true. Now, my own commitments are, are perfectly clear and I don't make any, uh, try to hide them. You know, I'm a liberal Democrat. I, I, the time I voted for a Republican was by accident. So I'm not saying, you know, that I'm not a partisan, but I try to, uh, but I have a lot of friends because I teach at a Catholic school. I know a lot of people who voted for Trump because they're pro-life and I'm pro-life. And if that's if that's your primary issue, you have to vote Republican, just like because of climate change. I have to vote Democratic. I can't vote for any member of that coalition. 
the Republican coalition because it makes it impossible to do anything about climate change. Um, you're, you're hearing in the background the phone, but I think we've intercepted it. Um, so um, the, the this idea that uh, you know that one side is right and one side is wrong and um, it's their fault, it's it's not true. Uh, and I know so many friends who voted uh, uh, you know for Hillary and um, and voted for Biden who have never had a serious conversation with anybody who voted for Trump. And they don't even think that that's strange. But I know that it is strange. So I, I wanna move into how we can repair uh, this situation where you know the, the one side doesn't wanna to talk to the other and, and vice versa. But um, it, it was interesting you had mentioned Deleuze before because um, I know in some portions of the, your book, uh, you talk a little bit about um, postmodern philosophers and uh, the book, I think, uh, could be said to be critical of um, postmodernism and perspectivism. I, I wouldn't call myself a postmodernist, but I do find value in some of the thinkers. And I also think, to be fair, that uh, some figures like Bruno Latour have come out re- in more recent years and said, hey, maybe I went too far with this or maybe I went too far <laughs> with that. Uh, what, what's Actually, your general feeling too- on it? Too- Latour never admitted that it was his fault. You know, I mean, I, what I what I read of him is, you know, the denial of climate change has nothing to do with me. And it's funny because, you know, his uh, We Have Never Been Modern, in, you know, his book in the 80s was all about how uh, science was a construct and had nothing directly to do with reality. And it does have something to do with reality. And so... I, I think that, you know, that was, as you, you might say, postmodernism run amok. But I agree with you that there is uh, great value in postmodernism. The value in postmodernism, even though I'm very critical, is in the insight that all of our knowledge is partial. Now, that's not a new seeing. I mean, every, every great religion, St. Paul said, I see through a glass darkly, you know, uh, We've always known that our knowledge is partial and in that sense, perspectival. But um, we needed to be reminded because, you know, perhaps modernism was a little too confident. And so postmodernism was a good correction. Oh, but I think it, you, when, you, when you combine postmodernism with mechanistic materialism, you end up with a world in which nothing is true, even partially true. And I think that's false. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good way to put it too, because I think in some ways your book deals with recognizing that we may not be able to get full truth, but but sort of partial truth, because I am one of these people that I, I've met a lot of people in my time uh, that claim to have the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And usually I try to run very, very far away from those people <laughs> because I find that you know, it can lead to zealotry really quickly. So I, I was wondering how you think we can avoid uh, the kind of zealotry where we think we have, you know, all the answers at hand at once. Well, you know, and this is where John Gray comes in. John Gray would say that the problem with the new atheists was that they substituted a new truth in exactly that same sense of zealous, zealousness and zealotry. Um, their truth was that there was no truth and that religion was false which was the truth, of course. So they were a little inconsistent, but they acted just like religious people. They were on a, they were on a, a, a jihad against 
uh, uh, people who didn't agree with them. And uh, John Gray's great uh, effort is to keep us from making that mistake. But you don't have to go to the extreme of saying that there's no truth. Um, rather, you can just be humble about it. You can just say, look, the universe is on our side. The universe is trying to tell us things. Uh, we can learn from the universe and we're always gonna learn better. And, this is, and we can marry that kind of, of a theology, if you will, to science and its method. So we can, we can hold our, our beliefs lightly, challenge them and not kill people in the name of them. But what, what atheism, what, what secularism of a certain kind does instead is it says, because there's po the potential for zealotry, we should believe nothing. And I think the, the, the brave people of Ukraine have shown that that is not an option. So there were just a few more things I wanted to cover here. You uh, say at one point in the book, I think very early on, uh, this lack of trust by which you're referring to uh, the, the lack of trust between peoples and um, you know, lack of trust of institutions is not just political, it is ontological. And without having to get into like a, uh, a definition of what we mean by ontological for listeners that may not know, uh, what do you mean when you say that? How is it um, ontological rather than just political? Well, I think that it's grounded in a lack of trust in the universe. And that's the, that's the point that Lonergan is making. Can we trust the universe? That's another way of putting it, is the universe on our side? So if we cannot trust the universe, why should we trust each other? If we cannot trust the universe, you know, why should we trust our institutions? But on the other hand, and this, was the, this is why Christianity was able to build Christendom, the, you know, the great medieval Christian civilization, um, Christianity was able to build that because it thought that God was in fact on our side and that there was something trustworthy about reality. That's the fundamental question. Is there something trustworthy in reality? Not just my opinion, not just my truth, something beyond us, that more than human, that is truth, and we can rely on that. And of course there is. And science knows that. That's what uh, Einstein meant by Der Alta, the old one. You know, he, he want, was looking for the truth of the universe. And, um, and we just have to do the same thing in politics. We have, to, we have to have a politics that is a shared search for truth. But as you say, with the understanding that our, that our current understanding will never be uh, total, it will only be partial. So th this, this I haven't thought about enough before the interview, but it's sort of beginning to percolate. It's always interested me that um, I think science ultimately is, um, how would you put it? It's a social enterprise because I, I think it's inherently uh, sort of a social activity in the sense that uh, in order for us to come to a scientific fact, uh, we have to have consensus uh, and scientists have to work together to, to come to a consensus. So it's interesting. I, I think uh, science as an activity uh, that we engage in is almost inherently social. Uh, and in a way we can, I, I think there's something to be said for that about, you know, why we should be more pro-social in our thinking because of that. Yes, absolutely. And um, one of the great 
uh, uh, downfalls of America is its individualism, its insistence that, you know, I am myself, I built my company, you know, all of that stuff, my private property, when everything is connected. And uh, science, as you say, is a social activity. It's, and, and Bruno Latour was really good about showing that, you know, how the, it was necessary to have an air pump before there could be uh, a breakthrough in chemistry. Yeah, right, exactly. So um, our politics needs to be more like that too. And unfortunately, our, our so, it is social, but it tends to be tribal instead of, instead of being universal. Science is universal. Uh, religion at its best is universal. Our politics has to be universal. We can't say America first. That's not a healthy politics. So I was also curious, I noticed that the great uh, French thinker uh, Camus comes up in the book. What, why exactly did Camus come up and uh, what, what was your interest in him? Well, because Camus was one of the first uh, really postmodern thinkers. And um, there's this great scene, it's a really an unbelievable scene in which Camus is together with other great French uh, postmodern thinkers and um, he's speaking, he's talking to them and he's saying, this has really been a problem. Can, can we reverse this? Can we who come from Nietzscheism, from historicism, uh, can we uh, explain to the public, to the French public and to the West that maybe we were wrong, maybe we were exaggerating and, and, and we're gonna try to repair this. We're gonna try to put values and norms on an objective basis again. Wouldn't that be the beginning of a hope if you, if you and I did that? And we see how difficult it is. Camus wanted to do exactly what I'm trying to do in this book. I mean, he's like an inspiration in that way, but it, it, was, it, it, it was too early. He came too early to that. We, we hadn't yet seen um, the, the catastrophe of the death of God. We hadn't really seen it. He saw it, but uh, others around him did not. You also talk about uh, bringing it back to Lonergan before we close out. Uh, you talk about this questioning activity that he called Cosmopolis. What, what exactly is Cosmopolis and how does it maybe figure into uh, the universes on our side? Well, I, I have to step back a, a one step here. Uh, Lonergan understood that there would be periods of decline. There would be periods of irrationality. There would be periods in which everything would seem to go to hell. And we're, of course, in such a period right now. And that's why he's so valuable, because uh, he, he, he wasn't predicting this. It, rather, he, it was just one of the things that happens from time to time. But there always is a group of questioning, open, and rational people. They're, they're, and they form a functioning uh, social construct a grouping, even though they may not know each other. They, they don't have to be working in, in a group. They don't have to have a, 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 a card. They don't have to be card carrying members of Cosmopolis. He was referring to this loose association of rational and good hearted people uh, who are always present during decline. And, and he was saying they function to help. They arrest decline by their activity, by what you're doing in this very podcast, for example. This is a perfect example 
of what Lonergan meant by cosmopolis. This conversation is a perfect example. Um, and you know, it's not a question of whether we're right or wrong. It's a question of whether we're open and whether, we're ra and whether we try to be rational and whether we proceed from bias or whether we proceed from observation. And you know, Lonergan said, cosmopolis ultimately defeats decline. Now, for him, that was also religious grace. God is there helping. But, you know, fortunately, God will help us whether we believe in God or not. So, it, you know, if, if there's a God and God is helping us, well, then good for him. Before concluding here, the, the thing that most interests me about your book is I'm, I'm often the person that uh, I look at things very institutionally. So the book was very interesting to me because we do have, I think, a declining faith in institutions. And I think it's something that didn't necessarily start with Donald Trump. Um, I think oh, we've right. had a, a lot of crises. I mean, I, I'm I'm probably, I, I describe myself jokingly to people as a fallen Catholic. So I would say, even though I was brought up Catholic, I'm very secular, but you know, I, I still care a, a lot about Catholic culture and whatnot. Uh, but it's interesting to me. I think, you know, the, the scandals with uh, priests over the years have led to a decline in faith in, in you know, uh, the, the church and how it handles itself and things of that nature. I think um, scandals like Watergate have had long lasting impacts on faith in our political institutions. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about where do you think uh, the lack of trust comes from? Do you think it's uh, where I'm coming from, where I'm saying, I think it's a multitude of, of different factors that have led us to this point where various institutions that we used to trust aren't as trusted now. Well, it's, yes, I think you're right. Um, and, and I think you make a very good point. When, when I say uh, the breakdown in trust is because we don't trust the universe um, and, and therefore we don't trust our institutions, I, I should add that the people running our institutions, because they are no longer trusting, because they no longer have a God construct running their lives, are more willing to lie to us. And so they're really... Part of the reason we don't trust institutions is that they lie to us all the time. They really do. And the perfect example of that was the, the movie, now I've forgotten, the movie about the uh, Washington Post uh, and the Pentagon Papers, um, the Vietnam War. And, and in one climactic scene, the publisher of the Washington Post is speaking to the Secretary of Defense and says, you lied to us. And she's completely shocked. Well, we're not shocked anymore. Um, and, and, and the reason we're not shocked is that now we know they lie to us, but I think they do lie to us and uh, our norms have fallen. And a perfect example of that- In is a way we, we've become numb to it all. We've become numb, right? We just assume it, but we don't even, it doesn't even shock us anymore. The, the, the leak from the US Supreme Court, this is a perfect example. The, the leak of the opinion in Dobbs, the abortion case, that kind of violation of faith in, within that institution simply would not have happened before. Uh, it would have been unthinkable. And, and uh, you know, but now we see, you know, now we won't have faith in the Supreme Court either. Why should we? I guess closing it out here, uh, we're facing a million and one crises at this point, including uh, climate change and a million and one other things, like I said. Why do you still have maybe that faith that yes, the universe is on our side? Well, um, you know, that's, a, that's a, the big question, but I, I, I wanna say 
that asking the question itself, is the universe on our side, is one form of faith. It's a faith in asking the question. And that is the most important first step. More important than our answer is questioning itself. Because questioning means we're open. Questioning means we're cosmopolis. Questioning means we're rational. Questioning means we can be friends. Questioning means we can learn from each other. So if we begin with questioning, we'll go in a healthy direction. But it's true. I conclude that the universe is on our side. And you know, mostly it's this. I don't think we could be something separate from the universe. The universe created us. And the idea that we're an accident, that we have nothing to do with the universe, doesn't make any sense to me. Evolution made us the way we are for, for reasons. Uh, it turns out that you can build a much better uh, civilization if you're kind, if you're generous, if you care for the poor, if you're not cruel, if you're honest. I mean, all these things that you learn in Sunday school turn out to be good for us. That's not an accident. That's the way the universe made us. Just final thing here, uh, and I always ask this at the end of the show, what do you hope that listeners get out of the conversation we've been having? And also, what do you hope they get out of the book if they happen to decide to pick it up after hearing uh, this edition of Parallax Views? Well, I think what I, 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 I want them to, people to ask the question, is the universe on our side? I want them to engage that question, think about it, and uh, uh, pull ourselves out of the political into something real. And that there's nothing more real than the universe. So I think we have to be scientists and not politicians in that sense. We have to be concerned with things that are beyond uh, cable, the, you know, the news cycle. That's not reality. It, it, it's important in its own way, but it's not ultimately important. Ultimately, what's important is the universe and our relationship to it and our relationship to each other. Beyond just asking the question, is there any other ways that you see ourselves sort of being able to pull ourselves out of the muck? Or do we, is it simply a matter of we have to ask the question first and then maybe the ball gets rolling from there? Where do you see all of that? Well, of course, it depends on the answer, because if the answer is no, I mean, and there's going to be an answer, there's going to be a consensus in, in building secular civilization. It's going to be built on the no or the yes. If it's built on the no, then the answer is um, to, to love each other. You know, in the midst of the darkness and coldness of the universe, the indifference of the universe, we have to love each other. And we'll have to begin building secular institutions of love. And we'll have to look to Christianity as a model of that of those institutions. If it's built on the yes, you know, the universe is on our side, then a lot of things open up because that makes social activity possible. That makes institution building possible. It, it, it means that when I go into a political situation, I have the idea in the back of my mind that my opponent is not evil, but is mistaken and ought to agree with me and will agree with me if I'm, if, if, if I'm persuasive and I, and, and, I, and I serve the truth and maybe I'm wrong in part and then my opponent can help me see where I'm wrong. Um, so the yes absolutely uh, helps uh, political life in particular. 
Real quick, and I'm, I'm not trying to overkeep you, I'm sorry, uh, but are those the only, do you see those as being the only two ways of answering the, the question? By which I mean, uh, so we can answer no and say that the answer is then um, loving each other and, and being more understanding of each other. But isn't there also the possibility that we decide, okay, the answer is no, and you know, we just go into, I, I don't know, some type of barbarism. Like, are, are there pessimistic yeah. possibilities as well as uh, optimistic futures? I think that there are, but I don't think you get there from honestly asking a question. People who are, who are interested in barbarism are not going to be open enough to ask the question about the universe. They already know what they want. So I, I don't think, I, I think the activity of asking a question cleanses us of our worst instincts. Well, because it's almost, it's inherently uh, self-reflexive to ask the question. Whereas if we're entirely reactionary, we're not even gonna think to ask the question. We're already sure of our, our own answers. That's exactly right. You, you can't be open enough. If you're open enough to, to ask that question, then I'm not too worried about what your politics are going to be. Well, hey, Bruce Letowitz, I want to thank you uh, for coming on Parallax Views. I really recommend people pick up the book, The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Uh, anything else you want to say here, uh, just final thoughts uh, that you want my listeners to have? Because I know uh, everyone is going through uh, a lot of unsure times right now. I wanted, I wanted to say one thing that may surprise you. I talked about our dog, Maxine, in the book. And um, she's been in declining health. And uh, whenever I talk to people about the book, the first question they ask me is, how's Maxine? And we thought that we were going to have to put Maxine down. She had a stroke on Monday night. And um, miraculously, she rallied. Even after we called the vet to come and put her to sleep. Before the vet could get here, she woke up and, and it is herself again. And it's just a small bit of uh, grace in an otherwise dark time. And I think the greater lesson there is if you look for grace, if you look for good things, you'll find them. If you look for bad things, you'll find them too. Next up, Ben Freeman and Nick Cleveland Stout of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft on Russia lobbying and influence peddling in DC, and will also touch upon Ukraine lobbying efforts as well. Ben and Nick should need no introduction as they have both been on the show before. Ben used to be part of the Center for International Policy where he ran the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative. He is now continuing his work on subjects related to FERA, or the Foreign Agent Registration Act, at the Quincy Institute. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Nick Cleveland Stout and Ben Freeman, who recently had a piece on Russia lobbying and influence peddling, in DC, published at The Intercept. Welcome back to Parallax Views, two of my favorite guests uh, to have on, Nick Cleveland Stout and Ben Freeman, both of uh, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And of course, uh, Ben and Nick have been on the beat of 
I would say looking at uh, foreign lobbying efforts. Um, so let's talk about this article you guys wrote, until Ukraine-Russia lobbyists successfully blunted U.S. sanctions after foreign adventurism. That's from The Intercept on May 7th. Uh, maybe you guys could tell me how this um, piece came together and uh, why we should be looking at it, why it's an important news article. Yeah, so we've seen a lot of, of commentary um, attempting to explain, you know, how we got here with this moment in February of 2022 with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, looking at the past 10, 15 years or so. Um, and I think partly we felt like that history wouldn't be complete uh, without looking at what has happened with Russia's lobbying. Um, and so we wanted to look at how Russia reacts in these uh, times of, of crises um, to improve their public image. Um, and so we, we started with the Russo-Georgian War in, in 2008 um, and detailed the history starting from then all up until 2022. Just to add to what Nick said there, I, I, I think what, what the, the importance to us was to try and, you know, in a sense, learn from the past with this and seeing what we, we've seen this playbook before from Russia. You know, we've seen them invade other countries. Um, you know, take land that's not theirs. And we wanted to see how, how their lobbyists, their influence peddlers reacted to that when, when that happened before. In hopes of, for, for us, it was, it was something of an experiment to sort of see what might they do next? You, you know, what might be Russia's play on, on the domestic front in the U.S. after uh, the, the current war in Ukraine? What, what can we expect? And I think what what we learn, what we hope we convey to the readers of our piece is that Russia is very aggressive in, in trying to garner U.S. influence after these foreign incursions, um, whether it's through the legal influence operations, which they were highly successful uh, with post-2008, uh, uh, the Russia-Georgian War that uh, Nick mentioned. Uh, that was almost all legal influence operations then. And in a lot of ways, it, it, it kind of worked. It, it helped to blunt a lot of the worst criticisms uh, of Russia, the worst punishments, worst enforcement actions. All of that was really stifled post-2008. Uh, and then, of course, we, we get the war in 2014, too. Uh, and that was a bit of a different story. You, you, you saw the official uh, Russian government said they were stopping their, their lobbying and influence operations in the U.S. And then you sort of see it fragment. And what we document is that these it sort of shifts from being that centralized Russian government focus to now it's the individual banks, it's the individual oligarchs, it's the individual energy companies. And so there's a sort of splinter cell approach to how Russia handled uh, the, the post-2014 event. And that ultimately, you know, there were some punishments here and there, but nowhere near as bad as a lot of folks thought it was going to be. And they, a lot of that lobbying influence really helped to right the ship for Russia. And so for us now, taking that information and looking at the future here, we think we, we might see something not too dissimilar from that yet again. We've already heard from some of these firms that are uh, that, that have been sanctioned and have other punitive actions against them. We know that they're going to be interested in hiring lobbying and PR folks to help them undo, undo this stuff again, just as they did post-2014. Can we talk a little bit about some of the actual, uh, the names of the actual firms and uh, the money that goes into this? So like, I think the first one that you guys really dig into in the uh, article is uh, a public relations firm called Ketchum. Maybe we could talk about that and some of the other firms. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, 
I think that the the nature of the work that a lot of these firms were doing um, indicates some of the di- dynamics that Ben was describing and how it changed over time. And so um, Ketchum, uh, which was the the firm that that represented the Russian Federation um, up until 2014, um, they were very focused on improving the public image of Russia. Um, and so you saw them um, having a lot of success in doing this. Um, and so we detail how after the Russo-Georgian War, they were able to uh, play CNN interviews with Putin, um, help out with an op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal that was authored by uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia. And so there were all these successes that were very much focused on uh, improving Russia's public image. Yeah, and, and to, to pick up where Nick left off there, I, I think really what we saw with Ketchum was this uh, kind of all hands on deck approach. It, you know, it didn't matter whether it was a, a, a CNN interview or, you know, a Wall Street Journal op-ed, uh, you name it. Ketchum was really helping to, to spin the wheels of this image management operation. Um, and it, 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 we really saw it bore out in, in addition to the, the, the quality of the work they were doing for them, the quantity of the money uh, kept going way up. Uh, according to our analysis, in 2007, prior to the invasion, Russian interests spent around $5 million on their lobbying efforts. By 2009, the year after the invasion, uh, it, it had almost doubled to $9 million in, in 2009. And so you, you saw a very concerted effort by Russia through legal influence operations uh, r- r- right after that 2008 conflict there. Okay, I think we got Nick back. Uh, I didn't know if you wanted to, I, uh, Ben went in there and, and sort of uh, had some extra comments, but is there anything else you were gonna say about um, Ketchum and these firms? Sorry, I'm not sure when I dropped off, but um, yeah, basically, uh, yeah, so they, they started with Ketchum um, and Russia realized that this strategy was highly successful. Um, they actually doubled their amount of spending between 2007 and 2009 on uh, lobbying um, with a very media-focused strategy, although there was uh, you know, government contacts as well. Um, but it was very much focused on improving uh, Russia's eye uh, in, the, in the American public or in the West public uh, writ large. Um, and they actually added another firm um, Alston and, and Baird, I believe, in, in early 2009 um, to, to help this, this strategy. Um, and as Ben was saying earlier, this once, once 2014 happened, then Putin's spokesperson actually came out and said, it no longer makes sense for, for us to work with Ketchum anymore. Um, you know, this firm that had helped them so many times before um, and gotten them out of a lot of these sticky situations, um, it was no longer uh, useful to them because they felt like... Uh, they, they felt like it wasn't a successful strategy anymore or wasn't going to work because um, of what he called the, the anti-Russia hysteria, um, but basically the reaction to 2014 because there were actually punitive actions um, placed on, on Russia, including visa bans, um, and most importantly for our story, uh, sanctions um, in the aftermath of, of the, the war in eastern Ukraine and the annexation of, of Crimea. So it's far less forgiving. And so um, you see, you see it going from sort of this centralized strategy uh, of of basically just one firm, Ketchum, to uh, a bunch of different firms. Um, and, and even though the Russian Federation itself uh, stopped its its direct or or more formal lobbying process, then there were a lot of Russian entities and firms that um, began to hire their own uh, DC firms to to help lobby the government. Um, and this was more more exclusively focused on on sanctions. But it's important to make that 
clear that it wasn't it wasn't as though the Russian government stopped uh, lobbying because a lot of these Russian firms that, that we talk about in the piece still have Kremlin connections or are partially state owned, um, though not all of them, but but many of them are. Are there any other uh, firms that we should get into specifically? I know there's a lot of energy companies that end up uh, getting PR work done for them. I think an interesting uh, example, and feel free to hop in here, Ben, but uh, one interesting example that, that jumps out to me uh, is the, the reaction to a potential uh, sanctions bill that was placed on the table called the Russian Aggression Prevention Act of, of 2014. Um, in this bill, it threatened to seize assets of major Russian firms um, such as Gazprom Bank, which um, might sound familiar because it was founded by state-owned energy company uh, Gazprom. Uh, and then there's also uh, Novatech was another energy firm that was listed. Um, and these two firms hired um, Squire Patton Boggs and uh, Corvus Communications um, to advocate against uh, the passage of this bill. Um, and it was also aided by uh, the, the revolving door. Um, there were several members of Congress, um, Trent Lott and John Bro, that, you know, no doubt have more access and resources to uh, advocate against the passage of, of a bill than, you know, say you or me um, to to go out there and, and lobby against its passage. And this wasn't this strategy wasn't successful all of the time. Um, but some of these more uh, hawkish reactions to the 2014 uh, annexation of Crimea uh, were were stymied in part because of of efforts like this one, which eventually did not pass. The only thing I'd add to what Nick just said there, which is spot on, is that I think it's important for, for your listeners here, JG, to understand that these are not just any old firms. These are two of the biggest players in the influence game. Corvus Communications is one of the very top public relations firms in, in, in D.C., uh, and they represent a host of other foreign governments too. Represent Saudi Arabia, for example. They've been working with the government of Saudi Arabia uh, since just after 9-11. For more than 20 years now, they, they've been representing Saudi Arabia. Um, Squire Patton Boggs is, is literally in some years the largest lobbying firm in terms of in terms of revenue brought in. So the, the, these are not bit players here that, that were working for Russia. And the list goes on and on to, you know, Mercury Public Affairs also working for him, Venable, um, uh, you, you know, Geopolitical Solutions, some of the very biggest players in the lobbying and influence game were working on behalf of these Russian interests in some cases all the way up to the current invasion of Ukraine. So what's interesting to me, uh, especially with this piece that you wrote in The Intercept, um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, illicit influence operations by foreign actors, uh, but this is all sort of like almost, I guess, legal influence operations. Oh, yeah, the- the legal influence operations, um, they can be just as deceptive as the illicit variety. Um, and, it, and it's sort of a hidden secret of, of D.C. You know, most of the, the influence operations that, that are going on, they're perfectly legal. In, in, in fact, I, I would argue heavily that the only reason that you would turn to an illicit influence operation is if your legal influence operation was not working. And we see this happening for a lot of countries. You know, if you're you're a U.S. ally like, um, you you know, Britain, France or, you you know, a country like that, your regular diplomatic corps can get done what they need to get done in the U.S. You're not going to stoop to the levels of of Russia. You're not going to try to hack an election. You're not going to try to do these really illicit off these risky things. 
And this is why I think what, what our piece tries to highlight there is that when the Russian government went underground in its influence, you know, it sort of scattershotted the, the legal influence operation. At the same time, the Russian government itself was turning towards illicit methods because it had realized that R Russia had become such a pariah post-2014, wasn't getting done what it wanted to get done uh, through those legal channels. And, you know, it did fragment, it splintered, like, like we talked about in the piece. But then that's when we really see the uptick in these illicit influence operations. That's what really sparks the fire that leads to 2016 and, and 2018 and 2020 illicit influence by the Russians, too. So I think that's a lesson going forward as well. I think that, that, that we can expect going forward if we don't have that legal Russian influence operation post this, this current invasion of Ukraine. I think we can expect to see more of those illicit Russian influence operations going forward. And also just add to that briefly, um, in, in the period between 2014 and 2022, um, you know, there were instances where there were more sanctions placed on, on Russian entities um, because of things like the uh, illicit interference in the 2016 election. Um, I mean, one interesting case study, which I, I think you could probably have an entire episode about, uh, is uh, EN Plus, um, which was- That's which was Oleg uh, Deripaska, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the brief- the brief version is um, is that is that this uh, this firm was was sanctioned in response to the 2016 illicit uh, election interference, um, and former Senator David Vitter uh, lobbied on behalf of them um, and concocted this whole plan, uh, which involved getting ambassadors uh, from a variety of different countries, um, some of which you wouldn't even think of, like Guyana, to send letters uh, to. The Treasury and the State Department to in an attempt to delist EN Plus Group from uh, the sanctions, which ended up being successful. So that was another another interesting case study. But I bring that up to show that it that it wasn't just there were sanctions placed on 2014, and that leads us to where we are today. This was a constant uh, ebb and flow, and and you know there was one point where uh, John Bolton basically said that that uh, we've placed all the sanctions on on Russia that need to be placed for for their uh, for the 2014 annexation and the 2016 uh, election interference. So it was an ongoing, um, ongoing event. So there's just a few more things I wanted to cover here, particularly uh, because I know it gets covered in the Intercept piece. Uh, how does the Nord Stream 2 pipeline figure into um, the story that you're covering in this Intercept piece? Um, immensely. Um, <laughs> and that goes with, I guess it should go without saying it's too Next broad question. a question. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no for, for, for lack of a better word, it really is immensely. I, I mean, the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is really at the heart of a lot of the, the friction right now between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, and, and, and for those who aren't familiar with it, it's, it's a natural gas pipeline uh, that would effectively circumvent Ukraine and um, provide a direct route from Russia to be able to export um, natural gas to, to Germany and therefore to the rest of Europe. Because right now, under the current system, a lot of Russia's natural gas flows through Ukraine, uh, pipelines there. And because of that, uh, Ukrainian entities are able to get a transaction fee effectively for for that energy moving through and getting to the rest of Europe. Russia didn't, didn't want that. Uh, uh, some folks in Europe didn't want that, uh, frankly, because it increases the price of their energy. So the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, for, for Russia, 
a huge uh, financial boon for some folks in Europe, could be cheaper energy. Uh, but for Ukraine, of course, uh, they'd miss out on all those transaction fees to the tune of billions of dollars. They, every year in fees, they'd be missing out on um, if the Nord Stream 2 pipeline were to be completed. So needless to say, because of that, uh, Ukrainian lobbyists were pushing heavily uh, against the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. On the other side, Russian entities, um, Nord Stream 2, Gazprom, and some of the other investors uh, who, who are connected to this Nord Stream 2 project, they're lobbying heavily for it. Um, and so you really had this kind of fantastic lobbying fight uh, going back and forth on K Street. And in some ways, it, it, it had been stalemated a little bit, but uh, the pipeline was moving forward. You know, prior to the invasion of Ukraine, the pipeline had actually been completed last September. And it was scheduled to become operational this year. And the, the Germans were in the process of, you know, certifying it, you know, making sure it was all good to go and everything. Uh, then, of course, the Ukraine war breaks out and everything that the Ukraine lobby had been pushing for to shut down Nord Stream 2 happens just overnight, JG. And uh, because of the war, Germany says, nope, we're not certifying the pipeline. But the Biden administration comes back and says we're going to issue sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline again. Effectively, all of these countries' actions have, have, have completely shut down the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline, much due to the dismay, I think, of some of these uh, Russian-connected firms that were heavily pushing for it in the years prior to the current Russian invasion. I think it's interesting, too, and I, this gets outside of the Intercept article into a piece you guys both wrote for uh, Responsible Statecraft, but you have uh, the March 28th. Uh, 2022 piece that you both co-wrote, um, Ukraine war puts spotlight on Russia's paid boosters in Washington. And it's really interesting reading that piece because I think at times um, when people have looked at this issue of, uh, you know, Russian influence or any kind of influence in DC, I think a lot of people have this idea, oh, it, it must be just paying one party. Uh, but there's uh, Democrats and Republicans that, have, you know, seem to have been uh, cashing in, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, that was a really interesting piece to write because I think going into it, we didn't expect to find um, as much as we did. But yeah, we we did something similar to to what we did for this the center set piece, where we kind of looked at um, a brief history of of Russian lobbying and found, but specifically through the lens of looking at the revolving door um, of former members of Congress to lobbying for Russian interests, um, and we found. Um, a lot. I mean, we found, uh, yeah, Republicans, Democrats um, lobbying mostly for for banks um, that were facing potential sanctions um, and attempting to lobby the U.S. government to uh, essentially get them off of the list, to delist them from from these sanctions list. I mean, one uh, one that jumps to mind that was ongoing right up until uh, the invasion in, in in late February uh, was that there was a, a bank, Sovcom Bank. Um, one of the largest banks in Russia, which was listed on a potential sanctions list. Um, and in response, then, then Sovcom Bank hired uh, a firm, Mercury Public Affairs, to, with the help of two uh, former members of Congress, including David Vitter, who we mentioned earlier, and uh, Toby Moffitt, um, who you know, wrote letters to congressional offices, put together different PowerPoints, uh, basically making the case for why sanctioning Sovcom Bank would be counterproductive. Um, and so this was this was happening right up until the, the invasion of 2022. But yeah, in that piece, we document um, several former members of Congress that were working for, for Russian uh, and Belarusian interests. 
Yeah, JG, it, it, it really is one of the few bipartisan issues left in Washington. Both parties can agree that some of their members will sell out to go and work for dictators. Um, it's it's all too common. And, you know, it's it's Republicans, it's Democrats. Uh, it, it really doesn't seem to matter. And, and we see it happen over and over and over again. We know that the most common profession for former members of Congress is, in fact, to become a lobbyist. I think what a lot of people don't realize, though, is that a lot of these lobbying jobs that they're taking, um, they're for foreign governments. And in, in some cases, like in, in the case of Russia, they're for entities that have connections to foreign dictators, foreign oligarchs, foreign kleptocrats. You know, a lot of folks that uh, I don't I don't think a lot of their former constituents would be happy to hear that their former representative is, is now cashing a very hefty paycheck from. That's the next thing I wanted to get into before we start wrapping up. Um, how can we sort of put this into the, the bigger picture of the work uh, you've been doing for a number of years now, Ben? So I, I guess Russia is just sort of one piece of a, of a much bigger puzzle is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, fr- fr- frankly, my plan of attack is uh, is now that I have Nick on staff, he's going to take over and I'm going to retire down here in Florida and just let him do it all. Uh, <laughs> I joke, but uh, a big part of the push that we've uh, been, been doing both, you know, previously when I was at the Center for International Policy and uh, where we launched the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative there, both there and at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, um, uh, I think a big part of it is to is to train the next generation of folks who who are taking a look at, at, at what these foreign governments are up to. Who, you know, and, and hopefully it's folks like Nick who can you know you know keep this uh, keep keep the ball going forward and really open people's eyes as much as possible about what these foreign governments are doing to in, influence U.S. foreign policy. Um, and, and, and fortunately, Nick's just done some extraordinary work and, and coming up with stuff I couldn't even imagine. He's a, he's a great project that he's worked on uh, related to the revolving door specifically. Nick, Nick has actually tracked all of the former members of Congress who have come through the revolving door in the past few years. And so he, he's doing some amazing work on that. And so I think a big part of it going forward is, uh, you know, frankly, we need more uh, Nick Cleveland Stouts going forward. <laughs> Nick, you, do you want to add to that at all? And I, just for my for my part, I want to say I think you're both doing great work. And I think, I, I guess for me, what's important is that people realize that, um, that influence operations aren't just limited to Russia. I mean, there's Saudi Arabian influence operations. There's, I mean, it's it's a it's a whole big game, you know. Um, and there's a lot of money in these foreign lobbies. Definitely. Um, I'll just add. I mean, Ben is way too kind. Um, but yeah, I mean, transparency is, is definitely uh, one major aspect of this. Um, and also just bring up some, uh, I mean, there are also some some congressional avenues, which I know Ben can speak to way more than I can, um, but I'll just mention uh, one, which was uh, proposed year after year by a former, former representative, Frank Wolf, um, who introduced legislation that would essentially ban former officials from, from lobbying for, uh, for certain foreign governments. Um, and so, you know, basically calling out the the hypocrisy that we often see with with former officials then working for for foreign governments. Um, he, he had this great quote where he says, "If you are given the opportunity and the honor to serve in Congress, it is a great honor. Uh, you should then not trade that in and represent the government that is cracking down uh, on its own people." Um, and 
even, you know, calls out some of his former uh, colleagues by name uh, who were working for um, Hikvision, for example, a big Chinese telecommunications giant. Um, but yeah, so that's just one of, of several um, proposals, uh, though not nearly enough proposals to to figure out how to uh, prevent uh, this this revolving door uh, phenomenon um, through the congressional avenue. But but Ben, you can you can speak to that far more than I can. No, no, that that, that was spot on. I I think too. In addition to that, we need to have some comprehensive fairer reform from Congress. And it, it, it irritates me to no end um, as somebody who wrote a book about Farah 10 years ago before it was cool. Um, you know, I like to think I'm a Farah hipster. Uh, <laughs> it frustrates me to no end that even even post 2016 and we see how uh, illicit influence can 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 have uh, significant effects on our democracy. Um, even after that, uh, so many people are talking in Congress are talking about, well, we need to fix fair, uh, you know, both Republicans and Democrats. Everybody likes to talk a good game. But when it comes to actually doing it, nobody's been able to get it to the finish line. We still have. How this- would how would one fix fair, though? Like what? How would you fix the Foreign Agents Registration Act? I think a few a, a, a few quick things, and that is a whole episode in in, in itself. And I'm glad I'm glad this isn't a call-in show because it, it could get hot. Um, but but a few things right off the bat could could really really help Farah. One is in the language of the statute, clearing up the language to make it abundantly clear who has to register, when they have to register, and what they have to file when they register. But both Nick and I have the thankless task of every day of our lives looking at FARA filings. And we can attest to you that even amongst those folks who do file, they're, they're doing the good thing, they're registering like they're supposed to, that the level of detail they provide in the filings is all over the map. Some are very transparent, some are woefully untransparent. Um, you know, others, there's they're literally handwriting stuff in. And so you can't even read people's chicken scratch sometimes. It's incredibly frustrating. We have to streamline that up front. So everybody's, so we've got a level playing field with Farah. Number two, we have to have civil fines with Farah. Right now, the only punishments for Farah are criminal. In, in other words, the only way they can punish you for violating Farah is to send you to jail or to threaten to send you to jail. And it's a huge threshold to go to. You know, some of the, you know, you know, some folks, uh, you know, obviously uh, merit that. And the Justice Department has indicted folks for, for violating FARA. Um, but they do it so rarely because the, the, the threshold for criminal prosecution is so high. The FARA unit needs civil funds. Uh, and, and these can be, these can even be small in some cases, you know, $5,000, $10,000, whatever it might be, just enough to incentivize some of these firms to comply or to face a real threat of some financial burden. Because at the end of the day, folks have to remember this influence industry, it's a business. I, I, I refer to this as the foreign influence industrial complex or the foreign influence industry. It is a business. These are profit-seeking firms here in the US that are working for the, these folks. If you threaten their bottom line, be it with civil fines or the threat of sanctions that they can't work for these folks at all, that works. That incentive that will incentivize them to be on their best behavior going forward. So if I had to enact just one fair reform, I think it would be those civil funds. I, I just wanted to ask one more thing. Uh, and I don't want people to misinterpret this question because I'm, I'm just asking out of out of interest. Is there so we know there's lobbying efforts from Russia. Are there also the equivalent of that? Is there is there Ukrainian lobbying efforts as well? Yes, <laughs> we actually have a report coming out about that. 
Okay. Um, okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'll let Ben talk about the details of that. But yeah, there. And that that kind of your question about Nord Stream um, two kind of kind of gets at that where it's like that was kind of the issue. Um, you know, we looked at for the for this upcoming report, we looked at. Um, the year of 2021 and looked at what the main issues that, that the Ukraine lobby was pushing for. And, um, and that was, that was one of them. So that was kind of one of those big back and forth hot button issues um, was Nord Stream 2. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that with the upcoming report. Um, but Ben, I don't know if you want to tease anything out from, from that. Oh yeah, I'll give some spoilers. Uh, <laughs> we we do have this big report that, that we've been working on actually well before the war in Ukraine even broke out. We, we were taking a look at the Ukraine lobby um, because we had seen that, that they were incredibly active and it was on these issues, particularly Nord Stream 2, they were just enormously active on. Uh, but other issues too, to a lesser extent, um, you know, arms sales, US military presence in Europe, that then that sort of thing they've been pushing for too. Um, and, we, and what we did find in our, in our research, I will get, let this spoiler out, it, it's the most active uh, foreign lobby that I've ever seen. Uh, and, and again, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I've never seen uh, a foreign lobby as active as Ukraine. Just last year, they reported over 12,000 political activities, um, you know, emails, in-person meetings, you know, calls, like you name it. Ukrainian lobbyists, we're, we're, we're doing it. Um, and, you know, we certainly might think that, you, you know, all of that is, it's good. You, you know, everybody is supports Ukraine and everything. So the, the purpose of our report is to just let people know uh, what, what they were up to, give, give people a sense of what's happening uh, behind the scenes, to provide a more, uh, a little more sunshine on, uh, on this lobbying enterprise, whether it's for a country like Ukraine or whether it's for Russia. Yeah, I was just going to add to that real quick. I think one thing that's always stood out to me about your work, Ben, and now your work's your work as well, Nick, is uh, it's not as if you're saying uh, lobbies can't exist and and like they, they, these uh, you know there there's none of this should be allowed. You you've said a lot of this stuff is like technically legal, but the problem is when they're not open about being, you know, uh, working on behalf of, of of a foreign government. Absolutely. Yeah, and, oh, please. Just to, just to add one thing, I mean, uh, one way in which you see that is the the difference in the transparency of the reporting uh, between Ukraine and Russia, or even or even Russia today versus Russia in two thousand eight, uh, as we mentioned earlier. I mean, um, and this kind of gets to to your question about uh, you know, or to Ben's answer about about how there's not really um, you know specific clear reporting requirements um, or, or that FARA isn't enforced. Um, so we see a, a lot of differences um, with how much is, uh, is, is shared with the public basically um, because they oftentimes countries or lobbies can, can get away with it. Um, and so there's a big difference. Uh, part of the reason I think why we see this big difference between um, the, the activity of the Ukraine uh, lobby versus the Russia lobby is because um, Ukraine knows that by reporting all of this, they're they're probably not going to face any real um, backlash from the American public or or anybody. Um, whereas Russia, we see very little reported um, willingly. We've we've also seen Russia move towards the Lobbying Disclosure Act, which is um, the other major law uh, for um, reporting these these lobbying requirements, um, which is which has a far lower threshold for for reporting requirements. And, and, and I would say another issue here too to tack on to that, and Nick's exactly right. 
in addition to all that, these, these legal influence operations that we're seeing, there's, there's these sort of gray zones that we have right now at, at think tanks in, in academia with just extraordinary amounts of, of foreign funding and specifically foreign government funding just pouring into these institutions and who, who are not registered under FARA and who uh, at least ostensibly believe that they qualify for exemptions to FARA registration. FARA has this uh, exemption for bona fide scholastic activities. Uh, but as Nick and I, have, have, we look around at the landscape of what some of these um, foreign government funded think tanks are doing, it looks a lot like what some of the lobbyists for these governments are doing too. And, you know, they're spreading talking points, they're publishing articles, you know, they're meeting with Hill staff, they're doing a lot of things that lobbyists do while being funded by these foreign governments. So this is another area where I think we need much clearer regulations from the Department of Justice on when FARA applies to think tanks, when it, when it applies to folks in academia, and if they're doing work for foreign governments that looks a lot like lobbying, then maybe they should be registered as lobbyists for those foreign governments. I was also going to ask, Ben, because I have you here and I, I didn't get to ask last time we talked. Uh, I'll, I'll let you go after this, but um, I, I was curious. So FARA, I think that the department that would deal with that is the Department of Justice, right? That's right. So is that statement of the department that deals with FARA? I, I've heard some people say they're underfunded or that there should be more funding for dealing with FARA. What's your take on that? Do you think there is an issue with funding for dealing with this issue? Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, man, you, you, you want to talk about uh, trying to drink from a fire hose. Um, I feel like that's it. That's the FARA unit. Um, you, you, you know, right now in the U.S., there's almost 2,000 uh, registered foreign lobby, registered foreign agent individuals that are doing this work. Um, it, and I believe the last thing I heard was that the, the FARA unit had around 10 folks <laughs> working there. So uh, good luck. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's about you. You're outnumbered about 20 to one. Uh, I'd say, our, you know, my mass off there, but uh, you you were just uh, 200 to one, excuse me. Uh, so, so they're just grossly outnumbered. And, and that's just the, the, the people who are already registered. That doesn't count the people who should be registered under FARA, who the FARA unit is, you know, trying to keep track of too. Um, you know, other parts of the, it's the National Security Division within DOJ where FARA's housed. Um, that, you know, they get some help from those folks too, some investigators there. Uh, but by and large, the, the level of resources de devoted to um, this foreign influence issue, um, specifically the FARA unit, it's just not enough. Uh, Congress should increase their funding uh, so, so they can do a lot of these reforms that pesky folks like me and Nick keep asking them to do. Well, hey, uh, Ben Freeman and Nick Cleveland Stout, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with uh, the work you're both doing? And uh, Nick, is there anything you want to say uh, in closing about the issues we've been covering? I don't think so. I think I think we covered it. Um, yeah, you can follow me. Uh, I think the last two times I, f I forgot my Twitter handle, but this time I actually have it right here. So it's uh, Nick underscore Cleveland S uh, if anyone wants to, to follow my work. And you can also just read uh, Responsible Statecraft where uh, both Ben and I's work is. Yeah, and that's uh, you can find that at responsiblestatecraft.org, and you, you can check out our fun uh, reports and uh, other things like that uh, on the Quincy Institute's website at quincyinst.org. 
Uh, and if you want to, you, you want to follow me on Twitter, where I, I regularly just shake my head at foreign lobbyists, uh, you, you can check me out at Ben Freeman DC at Ben Freeman DC. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Bruce Lidowitz and Ben Freeman and Nick Cleveland Stout. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. This weekend, I'll be releasing a special Patreon-only episode with former FBI agent Mark Rosini to discuss 9-11 and the recently released FBI documents pertaining to 9-11 and Saudi Arabia. So again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, all the information for the different monthly donations you can make to the show and the rewards or perks you get for that is available on the Patreon website at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.